Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today for our webinar on preparing for fall and returning to learn. Uh, before we begin, I'm, I'm Kate Moreland with the Iowa City Area Development Group, and I, I want to, on behalf of my partners at the Business Partnership, Think Iowa City and the Downtown District, uh, we wanted to let you know that we're continuing to monitor the effects of the pandemic uh, and now also the duration as, uh, as well. And we'll continue to support our partners in the Cedar Rapids area and help get out information on how others in our community can help our, our, our friends up north. Um, please continue to follow our organizations on the IC Area Together website and our social media channels for information on the needs in that region. Uh, we'll be looking for, uh, you can look there for information on cleanup days. There's one being scheduled for this Friday, if you'd like to volunteer. So look for that Facebook invite event on any of our social media uh, Facebook channels. We also are currently putting out a short business survey and we're asking for businesses to fill that out by Monday at 5 p.m. Uh, we can take the temperature of things right now, I guess, prior to fall with you as businesses and uh, we'll continue to work together through our collective project better together and look for ways to support you as businesses um, to, to help the community overall. So you can find that survey. I think Nick's going to put it in the chat for everyone, um, but you can also find that on the IC Area Together website. So on behalf of my colleagues, Josh, Nancy, Kim, and Mark, I want to thank the leaders that have joined us today to provide updates and have generously given us the opportunity uh, to ask questions. We know that as challenging as the last six months have been, the months ahead have the potential to present even greater challenges. We have college students currently returning to our community. K-12 is working tirelessly to plan for two different learning options for 14,000 students after having to switch midstream. And our hospitals continue to prepare uh, and ensure that we have the testing we need for the months to come. So I'd like to welcome Superintendent Matt Degner from the Iowa City Schools, uh, Rod Leonard, Senior Vice President for the University of Iowa Office of the President, and Dr. Brooks Jackson, Vice President of Medical Affairs and the Dean of the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. So welcome to all of you. And again, thank you for taking your time today uh, to talk with us. We're going to hear from each of you individually on your current planning for the fall. And then we'll open it up for questions that um, you can submit in the Q&A box. Uh, as they are speaking, if you have a question, go ahead and enter it in that Q&A box and we'll ask as many of those as we can uh, once they conclude. So I'd like to turn it now over to Matt Degner for an update from the Iowa City Community Schools. Thank you, Kate. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for welcoming us to uh, the call to be able to provide a little bit of an update on where we're at. Uh, we had a big board meeting last night and a, a few different um, pieces to update you guys on or a lot of different pieces to, to update the community on. We'll be doing significant communication uh, here through the end of the week. And so I think the, the easiest thing, um, and Kate, I should ask you this ahead of time. I don't know if I have the ability to share my screen, but what I would do is just maybe kind of show a piece of what we walked through with the, the Board of Education last night. Is that okay if I do that? Nick, I may have you authorize that. It, it's letting me do it, so. Okay. Good. All right, and so uh, let me move my windows around here so I can get the scroll bar. 
All right, so our return to learn uh, plan as we've approached uh, this planning throughout the summer, really since uh, as well, even in May, before we were letting students um, out and get them graduated and, and conclude that school year that ended in a in a different fashion than typical, um, as that's probably an understatement. Uh, we started our planning for this school year and what that would look like. And we really tried to keep uh, four big things at the front of that planning throughout. And first one, of course, health and safety, um, the health and safety of our staff and students and uh, academic focus with some high expectations. Uh, we knew that what we did in the fall would need to significantly look different than how we concluded the school year. Equity, we tried to use a universal design for equity uh, making sure we were given special attention to our structurally disadvantaged students uh, throughout this planning process and as as we go into implementation and then flexibility and parent choice. I think we've all understood the need to be flexible through this situation and that things aren't going to go as we plan and always trying to do that, which we're used to in education anyways, but I think it was especially uh, exacerbated uh, here through the pandemic and then uh, trying to give parents an element of choice um, so that they could also do what they felt was in the best interest. Uh, for the health and safety of their family. So we have really landed on kind of three different learning models uh, that we are, are working on in the district uh, with the caveat uh, that runs across the bottom there. So uh, what we had decided in July uh, that then we received further guidance from the Department of Ed that wasn't going to be possible was uh, to do an offsite learning model to start the year fully virtual. Uh, we had worked with the local uh, Johnson County Department of Public Health uh, to make that recommendation that was supported by our board. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the guidance that came from uh, the Department of Ed uh, showed us that would not be possible at this time, that there was a requirement that we needed to do 50% of our instruction in person. Um, and so the middle model there that you see that we will be starting in now on September 8th, uh, we'd had a calendar change to push our start date back, will be this PK-12 AABB hybrid learning model. And so on one week, students will be uh, on campus for three days. Uh, and on the next week, they would be on campus for two days. And so they'll be divided into A and B groups um, as we rotate through there. And so Wednesday is kind of the alternating day. Otherwise, you'll be consistent. And so that was a, a key piece for families too, that uh, we weren't trying to do in every other day, as we talked about the AB, that that would really um, already uh, again, exacerbate a childcare concern that's out there for families when we're only bringing uh, students to school 50% of the time. And then of course, the, the final stop on the continuum is the on-site learning model, the one we wish we were all in and that was uh, probably a lot more uh, that looks like we um, would operate in a typical year, but we're not close to, to that point yet. Uh, but that is the final stop on our continuum. And of course, even when we get to uh, that point, hopefully uh, at some point uh, this calendar year, we know we'd have additional health and safety protocols that would have to be in place. The, the final piece you see on the continuum there really talks about um, the ability for parents and students uh, to enroll their students into what we're calling the PK-12 online learning program. And that's a fully virtual experience that would provide consistency um, where you wouldn't have the transition between these different models as we see on top uh, that you would, could enroll in that. We're looking for a trimester commitment. Uh, registration um, for that model ends at 11.59 tonight. So if that is of interest to your student, you still have time, uh, but time is ticking away here that we're, we're trying to get that staffed and situated. And so we need to close the enrollments for that uh, program here this evening. 
Um, this is a slide that just gives an overview. And the thing I can do when I'm done speaking here is I'll put the link to this uh, document in the chat and then all of our district families will receive a more comprehensive document as we continue to finalize and add to this here before the end of the week. But I'll put this link in the chat. And so this describes our PK-12 online learning program. The quick summary is it's gonna be delivered by our teachers that have developed um, our own content and our own curriculum. Uh, and so we're excited about that. There are some courses that we supplement with an Ingenuity program, uh, but we feel like our online learning program uh, will uh, be valuable. And I don't wanna take away from what other districts are doing, but uh, we spend a lot of time trying to create this with our content and our teachers over the summer to develop those courses so that it wasn't just a canned uh, curriculum. Um, as of yesterday at 2 p.m., we had about 46% of our students enrolling into that program, which also influenced our uh, ability to make that recommendation to start in a hybrid model uh, last evening, because when you consider that 46% of our students at that time of 77%, almost 77% reporting, were going to be fully off-site, uh, then we know dividing those students into two groups and an A and B rotation in our buildings uh, gave us a chance at some good health and safety mitigation efforts uh, to keep numbers down in the buildings. So you think about a campus like City High, that's uh, roughly 500 kids on a daily basis instead of um, upwards of 1,500 students or a smaller elementary building, that's about 100 students instead of 300 on a daily basis. And so that gives us a good opportunity for those, you know, passing periods or lunch times, uh, recess opportunities to do some uh, creative things to ensure social distancing. I'm not gonna continue to run all those, but you see the breakdown of the different levels. And then this is just a schedule as I talked to you about on the continuum with what those rotating A and B groups would look like in the hybrid learning model. And then in this presentation, what I would encourage people to look at is if you're wondering about what our health and safety protocols will be, we have this really broken into, and again, I won't go through all these, but we have district-wide mitigation efforts. And a big one for us early on was knowing we would need to require face coverings. We did that early on. That was one of our first recommendations. And so uh, face coverings will be required for staff and students on our campuses. And so you see, as we scroll through there, there's different things around communal spaces, shared materials. Uh, we'll try to limit those uh, pieces, but this is all included, like I said, under the district-wide mitigation techniques. Um, a lot of signage, a lot of different procedures around health office and recommendations for students to wash hands, not using hallway lockers, limiting visitors and volunteers into the school building, limiting field trips and the amount of student travel so we can avoid time on buses in close proximity. Um, BASP programs, we know that was a big one for a lot of families and that this solution is not ideal, but that we're gonna limit those programs to a capacity of 10 individuals and that students and families can access those on the days they would be on site. The off days, um, we will not uh, be having those students participate in BASP at that time. And then the next section of the document, uh, if you get time to grow, go in there, or if you've already found the link and are scrolling through yourself, you'll see what happens elementary wise and then followed also by secondary wise. And so we have procedures around arrival and breakfast, uh, trying to cohort our classrooms and limit transitions for students and trying to keep them with a, a similar group of students as much as possible throughout the day so um, that that contact tracing can be more effectively done or if students are exposed, they're exposed to a limited number of individuals. 
small group instruction, uh, trying to limit some of the small group instruction, which has obviously got an academic consequence for us, but um, you know, our teachers like to pull small groups of students together and, and get close. And um, that's something we're trying to look at our, also our academic practice and, and how that changes. Lunchtime, um, doing some lunch in the classroom, or if not able to do it in the classroom, uh, using our cafeteria spaces and, and to uh, split students farther apart. Recess, same way, some of the different procedures there. Hallway etiquette, traffic flow, considering things like that. You can see dismissal procedures we're still working on developing. Secondary, you're going to find the same flow through here, guys. Arrival, breakfast, lunch, have different procedures. Um, intervention block was a time for us where it was kind of a free-for-all a little bit in the building as far as who uh, students could access teachers to get additional support and help. And so we'll really limit that. So again, that we're, we're not uh, creating more uh, mixing of students and staff than absolutely necessary. And then we talk about district provided PPE. We're providing cloth face masks uh, to students and staff, uh, face shields to just staff only. Um, but we have different things like gloves, cleaning supplies, hand sanitizers, doing some physical barriers, plexiglass and office spaces. Um, again, uh, appropriate hand washing, teaching some of those hygiene techniques as we go throughout the day. Um, and then there's some pieces about uh, screening for COVID and how we'll handle that, that screening when students report to the office uh, because they're ill or not feeling well or somebody notices a symptom. And we have guidelines given to us from the state about student and staff quarantine about how we handle um, different elements of that as well. Sorry, I'm trying to provide you an overview without giving you too much of the nuts and bolts information. Um, let me get down to another. Health office procedures, we talked about when a child is sick at school. And like I said, that was the previous slides were more about how we, how we do the screening, but this is about how our health offices work and then we'll have a second uh, space in the health office because we have students that obviously receive medication throughout the day. And so we need to try to keep some separate spaces uh, for students that may uh, become symptomatic and so that we're not um, further contaminating those spaces than necessary or again, exposing more kids and staff that would, that would be necessary. And then we have procedures for, of course, returning to school after an illness and how that works. Um, get to another part here. Contact tracing protocol uh, that we worked with our health and safety team on um, about how we would contact trace those, those different events. You know, we've had them pop up over the summer, of course, with baseball, softball in our current activities that are preparing for the fall. And so it's important for us to be able to uh, let people know if they've been exposed and to contact those individuals and we work closely with Johnson County Department of Public Health through that process. And then athletics, co-curriculars, clubs, and extracurricular activities. Uh, this will be one that will provide a more comprehensive up to, update to the board next week. There's been uh, guidance that's come from the state athletic associations and music associations. Mr. Kibbe provided a nice overview of how some of those music opportunities will look different. Um, we dealt with those last night because they're more co-curricular Next week, we'll deal more with athletics and extracurricular activities, but we do anticipate them going on um, and that we'll continue to have those in some fashion. But we also know, again, we'll, we'll need to exert a lot of flexibility around um, monitoring the status of infections and um, the pandemic as it goes through the community or as we effectively handle it. And so, and that's our kind of bibliography to the, to the presentation. So I think the big thing I could provide uh, information on is how we'll start in that AB model. Um, the other highlight or, you know, whether 
whether you agree with it or not, um, the district did enter into uh, litigation last night um, with the uh, state of Iowa. Um, we joined the Iowa State Education Association, the local or the State Teachers Association um, to challenge the interpretation of Senate File 2310. And for those of you that aren't as familiar with that, Senate File 2310 is the one that established the 50% um, mandate for on-site instruction for our students. And so whether that's because um, a district such as ours felt like it would have been a, a better path for us to start off-site and gradually work towards bringing students on campus, or if even if um, several districts like ours had at first developed hybrid plans that didn't meet 50%, but did meet closer to 40% or 30% of time on campus, we, we felt like that really limited local districts' ability to do what was necessary and right for their community. Um, so that is a piece that I'm sure will catch news and attention. And uh, just so you know the background on that, the district will be, I guess, in a, you know, anytime you hear lawsuit and litigation, uh, people's ears go up. But I think just trying to ask for further clarification around if that is the correct interpretation of that Senate file or if uh, local districts should have some more uh, flexibility around that. And then finally, the last thing I would uh, say before kicking it over uh, to these guys would be um, a piece that will come back next week in our board meeting as well is uh, some additional metrics uh, for when we uh, would look at needing to transition models and that could be to transition towards more on site and more consistency in a five day a week approach instead of two or three days, but also in the reverse about when we would feel uncomfortable about what the community positivity rate is and, and maybe need to back off. Right now what's been put out from the uh, Department of Ed shows that we would not be able to request or be granted permission until a 15 to 20 percent uh, community positivity rate, uh, which which seems high for us and seems like we'll need to make a decision uh, sooner than that. Um, I don't know how those requests will be responded to. Our initial request to start off-site, of course, was denied um, after the guidance came out, um, but we wanted to have some smart local metrics that um, let our community know when we would be looking at things and when we would again be asking for permission to transition or uh, if necessary, close the district or close the district or close a building. We have some better latitude to do that with individual students and obviously quarantine them or to do that with classrooms or wings of buildings. But for a whole building or a district, we're supposed to ask uh, for that permission and work with the Iowa Department of Public Health and Department of Ed right now. But the, um, the metrics seem a little bit high and, and make a lot in our community uncomfortable. And so we're gonna work to talk through some other uh, metrics that we could use as a guidepost for some future decision-making. So those are kind of the three big pieces from the, the meeting last night. Kate, I don't know if there was something else you were hoping I would touch on that I didn't get to. And like I said, don't wanna to get too much in the weeds, but provide you a little overview of where we're at and where we're going. Um, of course, we have a level of excitement about starting the school year and, and having um, our students and staff back, but also uh, trying to remain cautiously optimistic that we need to stay vigilant and consistent with our health and safety protocols with that, so that can go as smoothly as possible and we can keep people safe and healthy. Thanks, Matt. You guys have worked very hard all summer. I know it's been challenging and I commend you on the detail that you've put into this and the thought. So um, there were just a couple questions that I think are easy to answer um, before we move on. Um, can students wear face shields versus face masks was one. At this time, we're asking for the, the traditional cloth face coverings. I think if there's a medical need to do a face shield, um, then we would want to talk through that and um, work with students on that. But right now, what we're asking students to do is to, is to come with the face coverings. And of course, we'll issue a couple of those at the start of the, the school year for students as well, and then have some on supply uh, 
um, if for some reason student doesn't bring one with them to school. Okay, and then the, the second question that came in was just, when you look at an elementary school that has very few students registering for in-person hybrid learning, will the class size just be very small or is there a possibility of combining with another school to create a larger class? That's the million dollar question today. So we spent a lot of time on that one this morning as we've seen these uh, registration numbers start to come in and um, once those close tonight, we'll have a better idea about what solutions I think are on the table for that. Um, you know, it becomes a little bit difficult for, uh, we would love just to keep those class sizes small, um, but at the same time, uh, we, we don't have a luxury of uh, spending additional dollars or probably even finding additional teachers uh, at this time to, to staff either the online sections or the in-person sections. And so I don't have a straight answer for you on that one. I know that parents don't, uh, haven't been very receptive to the idea about going to a different school than what their student is currently assigned. And so to move those students to a different school, uh, to improve some efficiency around our, our staffing and class size. I don't think that's super palatable to our community. And I also know it's a difficult situation for our teachers to be in to ask them to do, um, you know, different assignments on a daily basis. And so those are some of the challenges that are still in front of us and that we need to develop uh, some quick solutions around as, as those days are coming. And uh, you can see part of the need and desire for us wanting to push the calendar back too, because we knew some of this was waiting for us as registrations would come in. Great. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Really appreciate that. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn over to Rod Leonards to give an update on the University of Iowa's plan. Thank you, Kate. And I do want to thank you, Kate, Mark uh, Nolte, and the whole Think Iowa City team. This is certainly a time when we all need to um, work in coordination and work together uh, through all of these challenges. And I think before I start, I also want to mention the you did at, at the onset um, those who are still um, working through or suffering through the impacts of last week's derecho storm um, we have many at the university of iowa who live in cedar rapids for instance and our thoughts and well wishes go out to all of those who are are still um, working through all of those difficulties um, this this week is uh typically a very exciting and uh, and busy week. It, it is busy, it still is busy, but in a, in a different way, we're welcoming students back. The population of Iowa City is increasing. Uh, the downtown is certainly more vibrant and uh, we begin classes on Monday. Uh, as has been mentioned, um, it's been at least to, it's anecdotal, but been um, reassuring to see a lot of our students outside uh, wearing masks and, and we will, as we have been, continue to encourage. That's just one um, indicator, one sign of, and one way of many to uh, help protect or help limit the spread of, of the coronavirus and, and um, when we're looking to for our university community and our community at large to help us with. But classes begin on Monday um, it will it will be different. It will feel different. We know that we see the we all see the news. Um, we recognize the changes in our um, often covered by media and by our fans. Our athletic uh, department and football season altered and changed, and so things will feel different. But uh, we are committed um, to the missions of education, research, service, and of course healthcare. And, um, and really working hard to, to make those happen. Um, we, uh, in this uncertain time, 
We are trying to make sure we can provide as much clarity and certainty as, as is possible in a very uncertain time, while uh, also uh, aligning with the guidance that we receive from the Board of Regents State of Iowa, from the State of Iowa, from the Iowa Department of Public Health, and from the CDC. And we're um, taking all of that into account as we work on a team of dozens. I'm just one person and one voice today representing uh, dozens of hardworking people that have been at this since uh, February and March and, and obviously through this summer. I do want to also call out um, the it's it's this is a time when it's great to have a great um, health science uh, set of colleges and a world-renowned hospital and the experts associated with that we have through all of this worked with individuals that include Dr. Dan Fick in family medicine been a central part of our critical incident management team uh, structure Paul Natvig who is uh, directing our student health uh, Dean Edith Parker and our, our Dean for um, the Carver College of, or rather the um, uh, Public Health uh, College. And then uh, Dr. Brooks Jackson joining us today uh, and, and really the whole team from UIHC. It's been really difference making for us to get um, into the weeds and really work on some of the challenges uh, related to uh, our COVID experience here, which is different than in other demographics and other universities. We have been comparing notes with a lot of universities, but each situation is certainly different. And in our case, we have 30, roughly 30,000 students and thousands of faculty and staff. There is no doubt that there will be, and there are um, a wide range of um, opinions and passionate perspectives related to how uh, a crisis like this could be tackled or addressed. And we appreciate all of those. We hear all of those. The team, as I said, informed by those um, entities that aren't part of the university but serve as guidance to uh, the university, and then the experts we have here on campus that have been working on this are helping us um, to a place that, that we feel is, is right for the University of Iowa. Um, part of that is, is minimizing exposure and minimizing spread of a already community spread event in COVID. Uh, Dr. Jackson will talk some about that in, in his comments. Uh, we have tried to do everything we can do from a physical perspective on the campus uh, in the modifications to buildings and how we program the buildings, sign the buildings, uh, de-densify uh, uh, de the buildings. Uh, we learned a lot in the spring about some of the office functions, back of house functions, transactional functions on our campus. As important as they are, some of those can be done remotely and in this environment to do them remotely and to have those hardworking University of Iowa community members being at home doing that allows us to have a less congested campus as the students come back. And so we appreciate all of those on the front lines and all of those that are also working every day, maybe from uh, their homes to serve the university. Um, those are, are very important. We've also tried to be very clear and consistent and constant in the messaging that we have to our students, to our faculty and staff. Every week uh, and sometimes multiple times a week, we have been sending out messages in email form. We've done video uh, uh, tags as well to show uh, uh, introductions to the classrooms, um, uh, different efforts that we're making and sending those on a regular basis to our university community. And I'll share here again, and it remains as a central 
portal for information for us on our campus, coronavirus.uiowa.edu is the source where all of the latest and um, those things that are historic to our process over the last several months are stored and are displayed so that we can make sure that folks can, um, can be informed uh, on, on this front. Um, we'll continue to gauge uh, the health and well-being of the university community and, and, and work to triangulate a lot of the facts that come in so that we can make sure that we're addressing those and to that point it, we, it, it will be incumbent upon really all of us to remain flexible because this is a fluid, we've all seen this is a, a fluid and sometimes hard to predict um, uh, virus and, and its impacts and where it heads. So uh, flexibility and multiple scenarios being run by these university teams on the critical incident management team have been very appreciated and likely will be uh, important as we traverse this challenge uh, this semester. And beyond, I think uh, many think just get through this semester, uh, and and that's one of the things we have in our mind is um, uh, health officials uh, nationally and locally uh, do not see this as something that disappears uh, overnight for us. We know, and and Dr. Jackson will talk about uh, vaccine efforts, which are on some fronts promising, but are not a magic immediate fix for this. So this is something that will be around and we have to think not just about this fall semester, but about the following semester and about um, uh, the, the fall semester next year. Where, where will we stand? What options do we have uh, to continue to teach, do research, healthcare service on, on behalf of the state um, and, and do so as, in as healthy a way as we can with as many choices for folks as we can. Um, we are testing. There's a wide range of, of testing going on nationally and at our peer institutions, uh, obviously hundreds of institutions to compare ourselves with. And, and um, again, following the expertise we have with UIHC and with our Carver College of Medicine and our public health college and, and CDC and others, uh, we will be testing all symptomatic uh, uh, members of our community, students and, and likewise, and those that are um, designated as, as being exposed to the COVID virus. Uh, we will, through tracing, we are partnering with the um, health officials with Johnson County. We have had a very productive and positive relationship throughout all of this with Johnson County uh, Health, and they've been um, great partners and great help to us and will continue to be so on the tracing front. And we have new, working with our ITS group and our ITS experts, have tools that allow us to do this very quickly where um, exposures are identified, there's self-reporting options for students, and the very next day the tracing can start and will start with Johnson County. So we're, we're feeling really good about our partnership and working with them on that front. Um, we're often asked, you know, so what's the line in the sand when do you go fully remote if you have to? And like so much of, of our challenge in this crisis, uh, there's no exact answer to that, except again for uh, scenarios, fluidity, flexibility. We have a series of things that we are looking at and measuring throughout all of this. They include the, the number of new cases, uh, the percentage of positive tests, available, availability of testing, um, the appropriate contract tracing, again, in coordination with and led by Johnson County. 
uh, ample classroom instruction. I'll, I'll point out that that's, that's the health and well-being of our faculty throughout thousands of faculty uh, working to educate our students and do research. Um, staffing for critical operational um, uh, functions that support the university. Course instruction and transition to online. I'll point out in, in the idea of, of flexibility, and in the adjustments that have been made during the summer in preparation for the fall semester, 72% um, of our semester class, uh, semester course hours uh, will be online. Uh, roughly 16% will be face-to-face -face in combinations of discussion sections and others. And then of course, there's a hybrid of those, but uh, fully 72% online. So quite a shift in this period of time to make sure this works and affords um, decompression, but also choices for students and for faculty, faculty able to report for um, uh, opportunities or needs in, in variances in how they teach. And that's being worked on with our provost office and with the um, with uh, uh, human resources at the university. Um, but um, fluidity is, is certainly a part of this, obviously, residence hall uh, capacity. Uh, you may have seen some of the challenges at, for instance, North Carolina that has come up, University of North Carolina. One of the early reports from their presidency was we have 195 rooms available for symptomatic uh, students should that happen. And uh, we're seeing a lot of them filled up and trending where we can't keep that. They have roughly 3,000 more students in residence halls than we do, but compared to their 195 available rooms set aside for that, we start at 623 available rooms and have arrangements and are working on arrangements with local hotels with our uh, other facilities we have on this campus, including the Iowa House and Park uh, Lawn Residence Hall, which is not open this year uh, for students to, as backup for um, those. So we feel good about that. And, and Brooks will talk a bit about the uh, capacity and, and uh, availability and how ready we are at UIHC for those matters. But those are some of the things that we're looking at, part of a long list of, of measurements we will have and we will keep taking during the semester as it starts and as it continues to make sure that our campus is able to take this on um, and continue on with it. Um, and to that point, um, it, it's important, especially with the audience that we're visiting with today, to understand the partnership we have. Uh, there's probably a great deal of relief from the business owners to see a university campus uh, bring students and that community enlargement and people here. It's also just as important to understand that while the University of Iowa has done all it can to make the physical uh, setting on our campus, in our classrooms and, and spaces um, ready to be as, as, as um, um, health promoting as it can be and to help in controlling spread, uh, the students don't spend most of their time in the classrooms. They spend them uh, living on campus and adjacent spaces in our community and in the businesses of Iowa City. We were um, uh, glad to see that Iowa City and the county uh, moved on mandates for masks. We have a mandate, our, a requirement of our university community to wear masks, face coverings um, in all of our buildings. We have issued and are issuing to those students coming back and those uh, staff and faculty that are either coming back or on campus, a care pack that starts the semester with shield, 
two cloth masks, two temporary or, or disposable masks, um, some hand sanitizer with a good way to kick off the semester, but also the expectation that we have made very clear about uh, wearing masks as a part of the series of things to do right by, by controlling the spread. It's only a small part of it, obviously, and we rely on the businesses of Iowa City to hold up your end of, of that deal as well. Um, obviously, uh, all of this can be based on a weak link. We know that there are likely to be parties. We know that there are bars. We know that these environments have been problems in other places and can't necessarily be fully controlled. However, if we're all working together and we keep pushing on these fronts, um, we have hope that we can minimize those, those um, uh, uh, uncomfortable moments. And we're gonna have to all rely on each other on that front. And so we thank, um, uh, thank Iowa City and the businesses of downtown to continue to push hard to make those right choices and to help those students make the right choices and our university community as they engage with you. Uh, with that, I, I will stop, Kate, and, um, and certainly um, turn it over to you and to Brooks for another um, update, if you'd like. Thank you, Rod. Um, I think one of the questions that came through that you kind of answered in the end is, you know, what are the repercussions for U of I students that are acting irresponsibly yeah. in Iowa City bars? And like you said, it really will be a partnership, but that was one of the questions that came in, if there's any. Yeah, it's, again, this is hard, right? But um, uh, we have a, uh, in our dean of students under, uh, under the part of the university that is student life, uh, we have um, uh, student conduct offices, and we have given clear direction to faculty that when they're teaching a class, there are a series of, of steps they take if a student comes in and doesn't have a mask, and in that case won't take one, uh, what they do, and, and um, the ramifications are related to student conduct in the student conduct office for um, faculty or staff who may choose to, to not follow those rules, uh, that's an HR issue and a, a, um, an employee to supervisor issue that must be taken seriously um, on, on those fronts. So uh, we, we look for, with a lot of what we have encouraged, with people encouraging each other, um, we look for hopefully a minimal number of, of conflicts on that front. but. Um, as I said earlier, there are 30,000 students and thousands of faculty and staff uh, on this campus with, with the diverse set of, of, of demographics from which they came, backgrounds, uh, preferences, passions, and um, those make the University of Iowa a special place, make our community a special place, and at times cr create conflict. And, and we'll hopefully all see in the spirit of this, we often, many of us, um, reflect back on the summer of, of 2008 when we suffered the, the major flood. Many didn't know how and certainly didn't expect we'd be able to bring this campus back on time for the fall semester. And it was a, um, a fighting spirit of togetherness that pulled that off and patience and understanding and kindness. And, and those things will all be needed as we head through this semester as well. Thank you and thanks to the university for all the work you've been doing as well. Uh, it's six months has felt like six years in a lot of ways. So um, thank you for six days. Yeah, it's, it's days. Uh, hard right. work and we'll keep going. We'll keep yes. doing it. Well, thank you. Um, at this point, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Brooks Jackson uh, from the College of Medicine. 
All right, I hope you can hear me, uh, Kate. So you know, University of Iowa Healthcare uh, is a very large enterprise uh, consisting of the hospitals and the clinics and the College of Medicine. Uh, and it, it involves close to 17,000 headcount uh, of people, plus a couple thousand inpatients and outpatients every day, plus visitors and vendors and contractors. Uh, so it's one of the most, I think we're within about a point two square miles. So it's one of the most dense uh, enterprises, I think, uh, in Johnson County. And we operate 24 seven. Uh, and we have, we, uh, have to do uh, most of our teaching, uh, in-person per, in teaching, since we have health science students uh, that are on clinical rotations that we spend uh, with them every single day, and they're also in the labs doing projects. Uh, so we, in early March, uh, we had to really quickly come up with how can we operate uh, a, a business like this, an enterprise like this, 24-7, uh, and, and do it safely and still provide great care and education um, and do research at, at the same time. And, uh, you know, it, we were very quick in, in, in being able to uh, get the PPE that, it, that it is needed and uh, put in place the requirements that people use face masks or face shields or both uh, within the, the workplace and in our teaching. Uh, and, it, you know, we've also screened for symptoms of employees uh, and patients and, and students uh, when they uh, do come uh, to work. Uh, and this has been uh, very effective. We have great testing capacity of about up to 1,500 tests uh, per, per day. And our turnaround time, we can provide usually within five hours, uh, but no more than 12 hours typically. Uh, so uh, it's very reliable, very accurate, which has certainly helped us be able to diagnose uh, uh, patients as well as employees uh, very quickly or students. Uh, and so we still have to operate um, not just the patient care facilities, but, you know, we still have to feed people. We have dining facilities like restaurants that we have to operate and we still have tables and we use plexiglass on each table so that people can sit right across from each other. Uh, we've devised uh, a, a number of different uh, uh, options for um, the break rooms on the floors where people can eat and, and do that safely at the same time. And I must say, uh, you know, it has been very, very effective uh, in terms of keeping everyone uh, very safe. We have had approximately 300 healthcare workers uh, who have become infected, I would say, over 90% has been in the community, uh, not at, at, the, at the workplace. And at the workplace, it's, it was more earlier on where uh, work co-workers, you know, would go eat together and would take off their masks and one was infected. Uh, uh, and that we are seeing really uh, drop uh, pretty significantly over the last couple months. And right now we're seeing that um, you know, the number of inpatients has really dropped. We had 13 today, uh, which is about, you know, one third of the 40 or so we maxed out uh, back in April or so. And the number of positives, uh, we've been averaging the last few days about 14 uh, a day, which is back in June, we were up to about 35 a day. So we are seeing a downward trend right now. Now, obviously the students are back, coming back at the undergrad level, and uh, this could increase. 
we have had our students back now for several months at least. And we have both undergrads here as well as um, uh, health science students, medical students, nurses and pharmacists, uh, physical therapists, et cetera. And uh, we are, you know, I'm here literally every single day, seven days a week and I see patients and we obviously have to see patients without masks many times. If you need to look in their throat or they have trouble breathing that they can't wear a mask. But we have found with a face shield and a mask that it seems to be very, very protective and, and effective. So, and you know, we do practice the social distancing and have the various um, signage on all the floors about the six feet apart and things like that. But I must say, uh, we feel pretty safe here. In fact, I feel probably safer here than, than most places in Johnson County, I would say. Uh, but we also have great treatment. And we were one of the first to get convalescent plasma in place for, for patients, as well as um, remdesivir, uh, dexamethasone. Uh, we have a home treatment team that uh, well, if we follow you from initial diagnosis, where we give you a kit and can monitor from home your, your oxygen saturation, temperature, et cetera, that in over 500 patients we have followed from initial diagnosis, only one has died. And that was an individual in their 80s who had advanced cancer and organ failure before coronavirus. So, you know, we are, are able to provide really, really top care for patients who do uh, get infected if they do. We also um, were one of the very first sites to start uh, the phase three uh, efficacy trial uh, for the COVID vaccine uh, back in July. And so we are one of the leading uh, enrollment sites in the country for uh, the uh, phase three vaccine and hope to be fully enrolled at our site in, in uh, September, by the end of September or so. Uh, so we're, and the data on the phase one, two trials uh, of that look very promising in terms of neutralizing antibody. And so uh, we have uh, been enrolling a number of people here as well in Iowa City, as well as here at UIHC into that trial. But I expect, you know, results really won't be available till probably November or so if we have good efficacy um, uh, and probably wouldn't be available uh, a vaccine till probably January, I suspect. Um, but I think there's good reason to be uh, optimistic. Um, we have had very few patients, inpatients under 40 years of age over, over the, since March, very few. This really is a, is a virus that has more serious morbidity uh, and people uh, you know, over 60, 65 uh, is uh, uh, I think where you really have to be careful. But I mean, I'm in that age group and you know, I still see patients I, every single day. I am teaching patients, uh, students, undergrads, as well as medical students in person. Um, and, you know, it seems to be very effective if you, if you uh, take the standard precautions. So uh, I think it is doable uh, in businesses. You know, I think the key is how can you operate safely and, and still run your operation? Clearly, we have to. Uh, and it's a huge enterprise and we've been able to do it. And if, you know, I think if we can do it, there's a good chance most of the businesses probably can too, but you really got to pay attention and, and be careful. Thank you, Dr. Jackson. Uh, one of the questions that came in for you was, uh, 
how is the overlap with the flu season and current COVID crisis, how can that be managed and what do you see for the future there? So flu typically uh, is from, you know, October through April with the, the peak typically in, in December, January. It was interesting in March, uh, we had a lot of flu actually here, but as soon as the, um, you know, we started implementing the, the mass and everybody staying home, we saw just a precipitous drop, like within one week, all the flu cases seemed to go away. So obviously all of this PPE and the social distancing uh, has a major benefit, uh, I think. So I expect we probably will see less flu. Now, obviously you should get your flu shot um, and, and they are, uh, should be available in the next couple of weeks and certainly encourage everyone to get their flu shot, which will, which will also help. Obviously the symptoms are similar. And so if you have symptoms, uh, you know, we have an influenza-like illness clinic, which is a fantastic clinic here out at Holiday Road and here at Pomerantz. And, um, you know, it's a drive up, up and they can do a swab and test you for both flu and uh, COVID. So we can give you a result very quickly back. Um, one additional question, uh, and if there's any other questions, feel free to uh, put them in the Q&A, but uh, with students coming back, are there plans for more testing sites, or will, um, do we feel like the community's got a good number of sites up uh, for that? Well, we have, obviously, we have a student health service, which typically uh, handles most of the, the students, undergrad, Many of our health science students uh, will, will use uh, UIHC. We have a number of, you know, the quick care clinics throughout uh, Johnson County. Uh, people can use those uh, as well. Um, so, you know, I think we do have the capacity to, to handle uh, uh, the number of cases uh, that, that come through. Obviously, the real uncertainty is, are we gonna be dealing with you know, a couple hundred COVID cases among students in, in the next month, or is it potentially a couple thousand? I mean, I think that's the, the issue. You know, fortunately, the students themselves will probably not be very sick. Uh, it's the issue, will they spread it to other uh, older uh, members of the community? And, and so to me, that's my big concern is, and how I would judge how serious this is, is if we get uh, a significant number of increased hospitalizations or, or, or deaths. Um, I think that's the real key issue. Having said that, it's a nasty virus. You know, you don't want this virus. It does take, you know, at best a week to two weeks uh, and at worst, sometimes months. And we're not quite sure about the long-term consequences. It, it doesn't seem to be as much in young people, but in older people, it can be pretty, can last a long time and may cause some irreversible damage. So um, something to keep in mind. Yeah, and, and Kate, um, every piece of information we get can tend to be anecdotal, but one of the news stories going out, for instance, Notre Dame, uh, um, dealing with some of this and some of their numbers even after the news story going up higher in the student count. Um, but I talked to a Notre Dame official this morning who said, um, they've done many of the same on-campus classroom uh, safeguards, you know, traffic um, restrictions at entrance points and classroom distancing and those. And, and they said of all the cases that they have that they are concerned about, not a, not a single one has been staff or faculty. There's been, while there has been this jump in the students and they had a couple of parties they tried to cite, 
um, there has been no indication at all to even one of those cases jumping to faculty or staff, which is in their mind, a good sign that the on-campus safeguards are, are doing what they intended for them to do. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a case study of one university, but in their case, we think often that it will go. And as, as uh, Dr. Jackson said, many of these students probably at Notre Dame aren't feeling the effects of this, aren't, aren't symptomatic, but we worry about the spread to others on the campus. And at least at Notre Dame um, so far, all of the cases are just the students at those locations, probably off-campus locations where they were two together. Yeah, and just to emphasize Rod's point, I, I think if you do, our faculty and older staff, people like that, if you do wear your protective equipment, almost regardless of what the students are doing, you should be protected. Um, and, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, students do not tend to want to hang out with 60 year olds so they don't go to the bars with <laughs> things like that too. So there is a little extra protection there, but still we've got to be careful because you just really don't know. <laughs> and you don't know where you get it. It, it, yeah. it just, and probably more likely that a faculty member get it at a grocery store instead of in that classroom where we've got distancing from the first row of seats right. and plexiglass and, and uh, isolated numbers in the classroom. Um, Matt, I have one question for you that came in. With a larger number of students online uh, for the Iowa City schools, is it possible to switch from hybrid to traditional and still maintain the safety precautions that you need? Um, the easy answer is no, but um, I think, you know, to provide some additional context around that, I think that, you know, the high enrollments into our online program made it seem more palatable to do the hybrid option just to have the the remaining students in our, on our campuses on a daily basis and to start to see as implementation goes how this works and are we able to remain, you know, as you heard Dr. Jackson talk there about being consistent and diligent and, um, you know, that's not always the case for, for children, you know, with those practices that they're going to be able to do that. And so uh, even for adult behavior, we see challenges in that. And so we need some time to see this in implementation and, and try to provide some consistency for what we have if things go well and you know the community um, positivity rate continues or, or starts to go down, you know whatever we see, I think those factors are all variables. And as those variables continue to change or stabilize, that'll that'll lead to our decision making about how the rest of the school year goes. But at this time, what we felt comfortable with about recommending that hybrid and the board supporting that last night was knowing we did have a fewer number of students to start. If you think about our large campuses, they're probably the easiest ones to think about the amount of problems. And if you've seen pictures on the media with the crowded hallways and lunchrooms, that's what that's our life on a daily basis, right? And the students are in classrooms. We have large class sizes because of um, you know what what we're able to do staffing wise and so if we went back to traditional um, you know even thinking with the amount of students into our online program uh, that's still going to be uh, really difficult for us to maintain uh, some of those health and safety mitigation techniques and so um, I think we're looking forward to the opportunity to, to try to run um, in this hybrid model and practice those social distancing and health and safety mitigation efforts, um, but we do have some question marks about how those are going to be able to continue and how we respond and uh, the consistency and diligence around those pieces. So I wouldn't say it's off the table, but right now, you know, the numbers really indicated for our ability to start this way, not all the way ramped up. Thank you. And one last question, and this is one's for you, Dr. Jackson. Um, any concern about the decline in children being vaccinated for measles, mumps, etc.? 
the reports are that vaccinations are down 58%. Yes, there's a lot of concern about that um, because, you know, measles can be a, a very a serious disease. Uh, and so, you know, I, I am one who I have personally conducted a number of vaccine trials. I think I personally have gotten over 70 vaccinations with 25 different different uh, diseases to, for protection. I'm a big fan of, of uh, vaccines, uh, but at the same time, I understand the concern and, and some people do have bad reactions to them. Having said that, the benefit of the vaccines are, are really tremendous. They, they really are, especially for children. And, and so I, I do strongly, strongly encourage that, that children get these vaccines and they overall by far are very, very safe. There are the exceptions, you know, there, there's nothing that's perfectly safe, but the benefits are just tremendous. Thank you. And I'm just going to end with a compliment that came in. <laughs> um, just applause to the university school system and the physicians at UIHC for attempting a solution, trying to figure this out. It's easy to criticize from either end of the spectrum, but we need to figure out the new, new world in which we live. It will not be an easy solution. It is about learning and it's a pendulum-like process. So I would echo that and just thank the three of you today for being honest with us, for sharing your perspectives, taking time out of your day. It's important that our community understand uh, from all lenses how we have to work together and how in each individual institution is also working to solve this uh, individually. So. Again, uh, just a reminder to take that business survey if you can. It just takes about five minutes, um, but we'd really like to hear how things are going as we enter the fall. And uh, we will be having a webinar again next week um, to talk to employers about how they can prepare for the fall. We, we're gonna have a lot of kids learning at home, which means a lot of employees trying to do remote working and balancing their work schedules. So we'll have some great panelists next week uh, at 3 p.m., I believe, on uh, next Wednesday. So thank you again, panelists, for taking your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Kate. Thank you.